This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. The speaker is Shyla Catherine. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. Sort of touching on a theme that was begun by a, a guest speaker that came in the beginning of oh, the end of April. David Loy, and um, I wanted to speak more and explore more about the theme of not-self in Buddhist teachings. But in order to do that, I felt it necessary to speak about a very traditional list, which is called the five aggregates. How many of you are familiar with the five aggregates? Oh, good. Now, how many of you could list the five aggregates if you had to? Okay. <laughs> All five. <laughs> okay. So um, it's a, it's it's one of the primary systems in through which the Buddha described how a sense of self is constructed. So many of the things that the approaches I wanted to take to looking at um, at this sort of required some at least superficial or at least introductory idea of what these five aggregates are. So tonight's talk is called Eye-Making and Mind-Making, the five aggregates affected by clinging. And I'm going to begin with a quote by the Thai forest monk named Ajahn Chah. And he said, Most people still don't know the essence of meditation practice. They think that walking meditation, sitting meditation, and listening to Dhamma talks are the practice. That's true, too, but these are only the outer forms of practice. The real practice takes place when the mind encounters a sense object. That's the place to practice, where sense contact occurs. When people say things we don't like, there is resentment. If they say things we like, we experience pleasure. Now this is the place to practice. How are we going to be with these things? This is the crucial point. If we just run around chasing after happiness and away from suffering all the time, we can practice until the day we die and never see the Dhamma. This is useless. When pleasure and pain arise, how are we going to use the Dhamma to be free of them? This is the point of practice. We invite suffering when we make experience the basis for who I am rather than just the content of what is being experienced. When we look closely at our experience, we discover that we cannot take the things that we contact through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking to actually be who I am or to be mine or to be myself. It's helpful to get a feeling, a felt sense perhaps, of what is meant by this process of eye-making and mind-making. So imagine for a moment that you're sitting quietly on a park bench somewhere, alone. It's quite peaceful. And then after you've been sitting alone on this bench for some time, somebody comes up and sits next to you on the bench. 
perhaps there was a shift in your experience from no particular sense of eye formations as we're sitting peaceful, quiet, alone. Perhaps there's a shift to a self-conscious awareness as we feel perhaps that our space has been invaded or that attention is focused on us or for a moment we don't know who this person is and why they've come into our territory. There can be a kind of contraction in the mind, a contraction into meanness, selfing. Not meanness, but me, M-E-ness. <laughs> Recognizing the arising of I-ing and my-ing gives us the opportunity to explore what is this movement of mind? How does identification operate? And when we see how identification functions, we're not going to be compelled to blindly identify with our experience. Our sense of sadness and happiness, of sorrow and joy, will not be tethered to the ups and downs of the things that may happen in a day. A teacher I lived with in India, Punjaji, often spoke of the process of identification with rather playful metaphors. And he compared compared identifying with experience to being like a person who runs after a street dog and tries to grab its tail. As soon as we grab, it's going to turn and bite us, isn't it? It's in the context of suffering that I want to discuss this development of identity or this process of identification. And to consider this basic definition of suffering, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, that we find in the discourses of the Buddha, where it says birth is suffering, aging is suffering, death is suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Not to obtain what one wants is suffering. Now up to here, the description of suffering is fairly obvious. It's usually not much to argue about there. Especially when we understand suffering, dukkha, to describe an unsatisfactory quality to experience. Not necessarily extreme anguish, but just the unsatisfactoriness of things. But then the definition continues and it says, In short, the five aggregates affected by clinging are suffering. This is what I want to spend the rest of this talk looking at. Are What are these five aggregates of clinging? How is it that they are suffering? In the terminology of the Pali Suttas, all things that can be experienced are understood to be constituted from an interdependence of five integrated factors, those of materiality or form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. These are the five aggregates that function together to form the system through which we know the world. 
The five aggregate model is basically an early description of a functioning human mind and body. It's how we experience things. We could say the five aggregates of experience. Interestingly, most of the references to the aggregates in the texts are not simply to a mere system of how experience is formed, not just about a reference to the basic five aggregates, but most of the references are really to the five aggregates affected by clinging. When these aspects that constitute experience are identified with, then personality view or a sense of a fixed reference point, a self, a me, arises. It is this aspect of clinging, self-grasping, clinging to this I-concept that brings the problem into experience. In Pali, the term is panch upadana kanda, which literally means five grasping groups or five grasping heaps. These are not five fixed substances, but instead they are the five constituents that can be observed functioning in any experience, any conscious experience. If these aggregates are influenced by craving, clinging, then that experience is going to be construed in terms of a reference point, in terms of some attachment to a concept of I, mine, or myself. This reference point becomes a standpoint, a self-position, a sense of someone to whom that experience is happening, someone in whom beliefs appear to reside. Clinging forms a sense of continuity to experience, an ex- ex- continuity that we conventionally call I. And this relationship of grasping to experience that we conventionally call mine. And the belief that there exists a distinctive being, a person, a self, that we usually just call me or myself. When this fabricated sense of I relates to experience with clinging, then simple, simple perception is distorted and eye-making and mind-making are reinforced. The operation of these five aggregates of clinging is not an esoteric experience that somebody is going to need long years of meditation practice in order to discover. It's happening every moment, whether through sight or sound, taste, smell, touch, or thought, these five aggregates of materiality, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness are coming together, they're functioning together in order to create conscious experience. They constitute the process that happens when I see someone and know I am seeing a friend, or when I hear and know I am hearing music or when I feel sad and I know that emotion. 
In this model, the first aggregate of materiality or form doesn't just refer to tangible objects, you know, the forms that we see, the forms that we touch, but it can refer to anything that can be apprehended at any sensory organ. So this will include the form of sound and the materiality of taste and the materiality of smell, of scent. I'm sorry, taste, I really mean um, flavor. Flavor. It also includes all aspects of matter in the body, in the sense organs. All this materiality is encompassed in this aggregate. Now, the aggregate of feeling, Vedana, in this model does not mean I feel happy, I feel sad. It doesn't refer to emotions, but it refers to a basic feeling tone, a sense, a a feeling tone of experience. Some people translate it as sensation. I prefer feeling tone because it refers to a simple basic quality of the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality of experience. Now, the aggregate of perception indicates something of a discerning aspect. It's the ability to recognize what an object is. And we recognize something by comparing the current apprehension, the current perception that we're having with concepts of things we've previously encountered. And so... We understand what something is. We are able to perceive it, recognize it. Now, the aggregate of mental formations is a very broad category, which sometimes includes all the other factors of mind. It it refers to all thoughts and mental factors that are associated with the knowing of anything. So what happens when we experience a sound? There's a mental state that arises. Maybe we don't like the sound and it's an aversive state. Or maybe we are entranced by that sound and, and it's a, it's a longing state, a desiring state. Maybe we're simply mindful of that sound and it's a wholesome state. All the mental factors that arise in that experience are included in this aggregate of mental formations. When we give attention to an object in order to say sound, we have to be aware of it. We have to turn our attention to it. Attention is one of those aspects that are included under the umbrella of mental formations. We have to have some um, volition towards it, some intention towards it. Otherwise, we wouldn't perceive it. That's volition intention. There needs to be energy. If the, there isn't energy to perceive something, then we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't be aware of it. So energy is also one of the factors that's included in that category. There are a whole list of 52 mental factors that could be included in various combinations. Some subset of the 52 factors can go into composing this. Um, aggregate of mental formations. 
So it, but it, it includes intention, volitional response, all the things that allow us to know something, to perceive something. And then the last aspect of the five aggregates is the aggregate of consciousness. And this refers to the, the knowing faculty, the cognizing faculty, the bare recognition of that sensory contact. So whenever there is a sensory experience, a cluster of events occurs. There's contact with the form. There's an impact that's felt as pleasant, unpleasant, or that in-between neutral feeling that's neither quite pleasant nor unpleasant. The perception is registered. We recognize what it is. Oh, that's a sound. That's a sight. That's a sensation of heat or pressure. And then there might be some experience of, um, of mood or emotion or even thought that arises in relationship to that contact. All of that's part of the mental formations category. And then we realize that there is a consciousness of that contact. That's the consciousness aggregate. They function together. They're not sequential. They don't function independently. Every conscious experience occurs through the combined interaction of these five aggregates. So imagine that you walk into a friend's house. Maybe you're invited over for lunch or for dinner. You walk into the house and you immediately smell something. And there's a conscious recognition of a scent stimulus, an aroma, an odor. And then there's a pleasant quality to that contact and some attempt to understand what that contact is. Oh, it's smell, it's a, it's a scent, it's an odor. But then the mind might think about it and think, hmm, maybe that's garlic. Maybe it's pasta. Maybe it's spaghetti sauce. And then there are a whole host of associations that might come based upon the thought spaghetti sauce. You might think about the last time you had spaghetti sauce or your grandmother's recipe for spaghetti sauce that you haven't had in decades because nowadays we just open jars. The mind can proliferate out from it. Or you might even think, ah, you know, that might not be spaghetti sauce. It could be pizza sauce. It could be pizza. But there is a basic experience that includes contact at a sense store, the five aggregates arising in conjunction with that contact, the stimulus is registered, and that the mind turns around it to explore it, to know it. If there's a tendency to grasp the experience or resist the experience, desire or aversion, or claim the experience as mine, that's delusion, then the pattern of relationship to experience that presumes a position of self is reinforced. Repeated in innumerable instances throughout a day, throughout a lifetime, it becomes a habit. 
A reified description of who I am is then reinforced and assumed through the repeated habit patterns that we've developed. It's like a groove where all those roles, descriptions, and beliefs that we hold about ourselves tend to collect. When we watch quietly in meditation, perhaps, the simple arising and passing of experience. And what will we see? We'll basically see that the aggregates arise and function, but they are inherently empty. There's nothing there that really could be said to be self. They're not claimable. They're processes and functions that arise due to causes and conditions. And so in meditation, we don't abolish the aggregates. We don't get rid of the sense of self. We simply observe how we construct ever-changing images of who we think we are. Images that change as the situation changes. Images that create patterns in the mind. Images that we then believe to be how we are and who we are. We create a story of ourselves. This investigation of how a sense of self is created is inseparable from observing the emptiness, the selflessness, the not-self characteristic of experience. At various times, our preferences are going to change. They're going to shift. One time we'll prefer one feeling. Another time we'll prefer another feeling. We might dismiss one thought and cherish another. Some themes within our minds will repeat. Some emotions will repeat. And others arise and pass away, never to really be dwelled on, dwelt on. When experience occurs, we might notice something in addition to what we're experiencing. We can notice if and when a sense of being someone arises. If we recognize this formation of self-reference, this self-reference point, and we see what is it arising, we can look to see what does it arise dependent upon we might discover that it arises dependent upon changing conditions. And when we see that the very sense of self, this most personal experience of being someone, arises and passes away based on changing experiences, we might kind of get it. We might get that it is futile to grasp formations that are always changing. Lasting happiness cannot be found either by controlling external circumstances or by reifying an internal experience of identity. When practiced, this is one way of investigating the emptiness of self. The texts that define suffering as the five aggregates affected by clinging are pointing to the fact 
that lasting satisfaction can never be found by holding on to experience. Experience, by depending on conditions that change, is ungraspable. It is empty of any real sense of self. There is no one that we can find behind experience. What we can know is a process, not a fixed entity who receives the experience, but a process. So not to identify with the five aggregates of experience does not mean that we're going to keel over and die. Nor does it mean that we become dull, boring, personalityless blobs of human flesh. We experience life. We experience life fully, but without clinging. The bodily and mental processes continue brightly, but they're not distorted by identification. The aggregates themselves are not abandoned. They are simply a process that comes with life, that is the process through which we experience this life. What is abandoned is just the problem, the part that is affected by clinging. So the Buddhist teachings on not-self does not negate individuality or the dynamic experience of living. What is questioned is the belief in a separately existing self, a permanent entity who believes it owns, controls, and manages its experience. When we bring mindfulness to our experience, when we slow down and investigate our moment-to-moment experiences in meditation, we can begin to distinguish these aggregates that compose our experience. And we might sometimes really taste the difference between a simple, clear experience of just what is happening right now and an experience that's affected by craving and clinging. We can understand our experience not simply as things that are happening to me, but we investigate the process and see if and how a sense of I arises in relation to sensory contacts. We examine what it is a sense of self depends upon, and how this story of self functions. The process of identification can be observed. It does not necessarily automatically determine how we perceive ourselves and the world. Srinisargadatta Maharaj, an Indian saint, said, You must deal with the eye sense if you want to be free of it. Watch it in operation and at peace, how it starts and when it ceases, what it wants and how it gets it, till you see clearly and understand fully, after all, 
All the yogas, whatever their source and character, have only one aim, to save you from the calamity of separate existence, of being a meaningless dot in a vast and beautiful picture. You suffer because you have alienated yourself from reality, and now you seek an escape from this alienation. You cannot escape from your own obsessions. You can only cease nursing them. Concepts of I and mine arise in contact with experience, whether that's heightened spiritual experiences or the mundane contacts of everyday life. But where there is no concept of I and no formation of mine, there simply is no suffering. Let's have a few quiet minutes to let that settle, and then we'll see if there are any questions. Do you have any questions? Any comments? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's probably an inconsistency in the way that I use the language and also an inconsistency in the language that we see in the texts where dukkha, um, in some context refers to anything that's conditioned, you know, birth that, that, that's born and dies, that arises and passes, that's impermanent. Even if it, it, it's inherently said to be dukkha, because it's unreliable. And in that sense, we'd see the body always as being dukkha. Um, and some, some, te- some people don't like the translation of dukkha as suffering because it doesn't always mean really intense pain and anguish. Often it, it implies simply an unsatisfactoriness, an unreliability. Um, and so, so even the language, uh, uh, just a sense of, of a stress. But if we, the problem with translating it then as stress or as, um, is, is sometimes it doesn't have the weight that is really needed. I mean, dukkha is significant. The presence of dukkha is very significant. Um, so it's something we have to play with. But certainly in those two contexts, we could say that, um, Experience is always suffering <laughs> in the sense of saying it's unreliable as a basis for happiness. We could say that birth, which you might say is an occasion for joy, is suffering because in birth there will be death. I mean, it'll lead to death. Um, so, but we could also then see that there's a cause of suffering which is the attachment, the wanting things to be a certain way. And when you look at your self-story, the way that the mind creates a sense of self, how much of it is around constructing some kind of an idea 
of who we are in relationship to what we like and what we don't like, what we want to become, and how we judge ourselves from past to what we want to become in the future. You know, the liking, the not liking, the past, the future, we're constructing these stories so much around this desire, this craving. So, um, so then, then we could see this, this part of suffering that is really dealing with the cause of suffering. And I think there are quite a few references to suffering that are a condensed way of looking at just the fact of suffer, of unsatisfactoriness. Uh, in the in the five aggregates, the fact that this mind and body is not ever going to be a source of lasting happiness, because there will be a time when we when we have an ouch, <laughs> you know, something is going to hurt. Um, but if there is no attachment, which is the cause of suffering, the craving, then we won't be amplifying that suffering. And so sometimes we condense uh, that. I think the the approach condenses um, the no, the four noble truths into just the idea of suffering, rather than teasing them out to say there's an unsatisfactoriness to these formations, and then there can be a clinging to these formations. So then we, in English, try to make a difference between pain and suffering. But in the texts, we wouldn't really translate dukkha in some say, cases as pain, in some cases as suffering. We just use dukkha as suffering or unsatisfactory. I didn't really answer your question, but <laughs> other questions, comments, discussion. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and what's to be involved with with the sound? I mean, you know it. You're conscious of it. You're mindful of it. You're not sep- you're not um, you're not pushing it away or aversive to it. So I think this is this is a very interesting place to um, observe. It's right in the moment that we're hearing something, or that we're feeling something, or that we're tasting something, or that we're seeing something in the sensory contact. Because when we bring our mindfulness, our attention to the experience of any sensory impact, and we are really mindful of it, we're not constructing a sense of self. We're just present with what is. It's arising, and it's being known, and it's passing away. No grasping. But sometimes another movement happens in the mind where we start to relate to that sound, or that sensation, or that sight, in a way that tries to do something with it. You know, tries to conceive of it as belonging to me, or I like it, I want it, I want to make it this way, or it should be happening, or it shouldn't be happening, or we impose our views and our ideas, and all this other stuff that isn't really affecting the sound. That's, that's still arising and passing away. 
but it's serving this twisted purpose of reinforcing again and again the sense of being someone who is now listening and having this experience in relationship to it. I like it. I don't want it. It should happen. It shouldn't. I know best. And all this stuff can happen in the mind. And we're doing all that. We're constructing this sense of self. That, you can sense the dukkha of that, right? You can sense the extra burden of suffering. Not just there's a presence of a sound, but that extra agitation that we create through the through the clinging. It's very interesting. It, it happens subtly, and it happens all the time. Yes, Jen. <laughs> yeah. 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 Very well said. And when you know that, you can make the you can tease out the difference between that physical pain and the mental pain that we add on top of it. That the the, the suffering of the I can't stand this, which creates this whole self in the future, too. Yeah, well said. Thank you. Well, I think for the next couple of weeks, I still want to explore this theme of not-self in various ways. Um, so um, we will continue in different ways. This hopefully lays a little bit of the groundwork of, of, of the classic way that we find in the discourses of the Buddha, um, Self and uh, not self is uh, self. The self, the formation of self, is explored. And I should probably mention that I making and mind making is a technical term. Those are technical terms in the um, in the discourses of the Buddha. Okay. Okay. I'll list them, but I'll also refer you to the website. Go to um, our website, imsb.org. Go to teachings, and then when you look at the menu at the sublist under teachings, you'll see that there's something called Buddhist lists. And, right. 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 So anyway, if anybody wants that list, there's a whole list of Buddhist lists that we made, and it's right there. Um, so, materiality, sometimes called form, materiality, feeling, perception, uh, mental formations, and consciousness. Have a safe drive home. See you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.